Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 5, Die Trying, is over, but we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Lease, and Mike Bloom and I are going to bring you an awesome podcast, or we're going to, you know, die trying. Hey, Mike, how are you doing? I'm good. I don't know how I feel about that ultimatum. You essentially put two truths out there, and as a new Admiral Hardass Vance is one to tell us, two truths exist in one space, and that's never a good thing. Yeah. Is there two truths and also a lie? Yeah, I guess. Because I'm given to understand that's a good way to break the ice. That's the thing is it's sort of like two truths. One truth, great. Two truths, not ideal. Two truths and a lie, really great icebreaker, which I think Discovery could have used in this episode and Saru should have implemented last episode. They absolutely should have. And I'm surprised that Zora didn't recommend that to Saru. Yeah. Well, I don't know. She was, I think she went too far back. You know, she was going to like mm. the the 20s and the 30s and the 50s, whereas I do think Two Truths and a Lie really caught on in the slumber parties of the 80s, 90s and today. Yeah, it's it's true. That is that is a classic hit of the 80s, 90s and today. Uh, so, Mike, before we get into all of the events of this awesome episode, support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, and Fire TV and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. So, Mike, Pluto TV has a whole channel just for Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is very pertinent to our interests, especially in a show that, despite jumping more than a millennium or almost a millennium into the future, is uh, is all about referencing previous shows, as we saw with the ship hub that featured the 11th iteration of Voyager and the USS Nog. You know, canon will always be there, no matter how many how far you go into the future. So if you ever want sort of a refresher on some things, much like Jess did last week with our, our Trill catch-up, hey, Pluto TV for completely for free has a channel that just runs Star Trek 24-7. From, I believe, I don't know if it's all series or just uh, amongst those first five that, that span those 50 years or so, but still, that's pretty... Damn good bang for your buck, considering the buck is no buck at that. That's a bargain at twice the price. And honestly, Mike, we cannot possibly be living in the darkest timeline if there is a free channel out there in the world where you can just watch Star Trek all the time. Do you think at Federation HQ is that like with their own sort of Pluto TV is just like them running previous uh, transmissions of other Starfleet missions just so they're aware about their history? I don't know, Mike. It's kind of one of those things where if something is your job, you don't want to spend your off hours doing it. I mean, you would hope so, but it does seem that unfortunately this poor beleaguered federation has to put out hundreds of fires 
seemingly at the same time that like they can't help but concern with some, themselves with their jobs in every waking moment. It's a good point. And especially with no long distance, long range subspace communication, they're going to have to rely on something to keep them informed of how everything worked, which is why I was, I was a little weirded out by the fact that they didn't really like, they said, Hey, we've got a hundred thousand years of computer data spanning the entire universe. And Admiral Vance is like, yeah, nah, thanks. We're good. Yeah. So let's, let's get into it as we sort of segue into the episode proper, because we talked about this last week. Here we are. We finally found Federation. And look, uh, I am not saying they got nearly as cold of a reception as Earth gave them. But if that was sort of like absolute zero, I'd say this was like maybe the freezing point in that Admiral Vance just basically like Odid Farr's eyebrow was cooked, was, you know, like <laughs> cocked the entire time that he was talking to them of like, are you really who you say you are? Even if you are, I don't think I can trust time travelers that just dropped out of the sky and are now coming home to roost. Yeah, well, he does have a point in that he really doesn't have anything except their word. And I would imagine that there's a lot of people out there now that would be going back on their word or pretending to try to make a profit. Mm. And honestly, yeah, the first thing he says to them is like, yeah, time travel is illegal, which I feel like that's kind of hard to enforce because <laughs> they made time travel illegal at a certain point in time. But right. if you are time traveling before that point in time, you know, what are they going to do? Like you tra- travel forward in time. It hasn't happened yet. So you don't know that. I don't know. That's that seemed hard to enforce. Right. Exactly. It's not like there's a warning sign that pops up in the wormhole. Like, just so you know, you're reaching a point in the time space continuum where this is technically illegal. So, you know, go back and you're basically back in international waters again. Like they can't necessarily help it. They're doing the best that they can. I mean, I think it's very clear that Vance since Discovery, I think it's been sort of accepted into the quote-unquote warm embrace of the Federation by the end of this. It's, I can imagine that Vance is sort of going to be their go-to for the foreseeable future. And we'll see what happens, because, man, that dude it just seems like Mr. Bristle. He does not really have any sort of sense of humor. Uh, every, everything he says almost has like a sneer to it. I mean, I love the actor Oded Fair. Uh, I know him most lovingly as the the man that shows up in the third act of The Mummy, uh, the guy with like oh. the long hair and the face tattoos who helps the gang. I would not have recognized him. I didn't know. I didn't know it until I looked it up because Angela and I were watching. She's like, he's so familiar that, and he played Jafar on Once Upon a Time because, of course, they did Aladdin. So it's fun to see him in this instance, but definitely the most douchey variety I've seen of of this actor's performances so far. Yeah, well, Mike, in his defense, I I think. If I had to deal with the headache that is trying to manage a dying federation mm. and then the bunch of jokers showed up pretending that they're going to save the world and a best case scenario is they're from a thousand years ago and they don't – they're not up on current events and B, worst case scenario is they just got a whole bunch of antique gear and decided to come and mess with us. I, I see where he's coming from and also – it really screws the crew of the disco that they expunged all the records of the ship yeah. from everything. So it's like, yeah, you guys don't exist. You all died. So that's a little bit sus. Yeah. Though, I mean, now I feel bad for him to the extent of, okay, so we have the Federation, but there were never was like one admiral of the Federation, right? Like we've seen yeah. admirals in the past, but it was usually like a pretty organized web does this guy, because there's only 38 planets or so, he's now taking this all upon him? Because even, as you're pointing out, 38 planets is still a hell of a lot of conflict to deal with. 
Yeah, that's true. And I maybe maybe there's some days where he feels like maybe it's good that there's not 350 anymore. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, you know what? This is a more manageable number, though. I don't know. I also maybe question his managerial duties if he just lets like a random David Cronenberg type just wander around wearing antiquated costumes for no reason in particular. Like, I really I mean, listen, I have several questions about this man, as you would with any David Cronenberg film or character. But one of them is just like, is he even part of Starfleet or is he just some sort of like terror like mirror universe perv that got to sneak in once he heard that someone from the terrans was being interrogated and i was like ooh, now it's time to finally you know uh dig into the stuff that i've been obsessed with for so long yeah see i was calling him i was alternately calling him space burgess meredith and space john munch mm-hmm. yeah i mean he sort of falls into all those tropes right he's yeah. a very like eclectic gray-haired man i mean wearing the suit is also one thing because again like it's so odd to see people outside of the holodeck wearing suits and here he is just sort of (laughs) like i don't know dressed like uh, a grandpa who wandered away from a wedding uh into into like another party or something it was just so strange and i'm I'm assuming i mean meaningfully so because it seemed to have its effect on Giorgio. but yeah i mean there was obviously a lot to take in from this new federation but for some reason the one thing i really came away with was like yeah, I mean, did they even talk about the fact that there's a there's David Cronenberg just kind of wandering around, going rogue a bit with his own interrogations, <laughs> doing away with the hollows of it all? Yeah, well, you know, it could also be this sort of good cop, bad cop scenario where it's like, well, we have the people that are following the rules and doing the right thing and asking the proper questions. And then if we need to, we got this other guy who plays a little bit outside the rules mm. and who... You know, he's got a different outfit on, so you know it's like a different tactic. Do you think the institution of hollows, which obviously are a big thing uh, on Star Trek Picard, but do you think it was like a natural thing given technology? Or do you think this is, to your point before, sort of just like filling empty seats? Like there's just not enough personnel, so now they're going to have holograms be the ones that interrogate everybody. Well, honestly, Mike, if you had... Unlimited energy sources, but n- limited bodies. I think, and you are married to a human resources representative, and I think mm-hmm. she would tell you the same thing. If you, if those are the assets you have, you are definitely going to fill as many seats virtually as you can. That's true. And not all of them, you know, you might get some nons who are going to be belligerent at these questions, but you're very rarely going to get a Giorgio who straight up breaks your programming. Yeah. I loved that Giorgio. That was her first go-to. Is like, yeah, I'm just gonna break them. Yeah, I think my fa- and, my favorite. I'm gonna my favorite part of the episode, honestly, was the whole interrogation montage. And you know, part of me was thinking, <laughs> like, you know, it's season three, episode five. Did we deserve the right to go meta so early on? <laughs> but because so much crazy crap has happened on Discovery across nearly forty episodes, like, I think it's okay that they bring up, like, yeah, he was dead. Yeah, Tilly had to masquerade as her terrorist self. Uh, you know, yes, Jet Reno was found on an asteroid subsisting on, you know, keeping uh, everybody alive, despite the fact that she's an engineer. Like there was so much wackadoo stuff that has happened in this series for good or for bad. that I think it's it's fun sometimes to sort of sit down and really we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, actually, the the idea that people just sort of remind themselves like, yeah, we've been through a lot of stuff on the USS Discovery and to have them try to explain it to an outside source made it that much more funnier. Yeah, and I feel like this is a trope. Like, we have seen a lot of shows go to this well of we're going to take the ensemble cast and, like, have each one individually tell a piece of the story in a room and have it kind of be out of context so it's funnier. 
I, I feel like we've seen this in a lot of shows, but it's always a useful device to get everybody back into the story. And there were some really great lines. Like I liked, I liked Colbert saying I was murdered, but my murderer and I are good now. Yeah, exactly. And I love Jet Reno interrupting the interrogation to get some looks just like chips and salsa, like not even yeah, a nachos deal. I would have, I would have held out for nachos yeah. to be honest. Um, but she's going like the blue corn route, which I feel like is also says a lot about who Jet Reno is. Hey, I, I, I fully endorse that choice as well. I mean, I think it's definitely like if, if it's an acquired taste, so if you want to go for it, I think Jet Reno, I think, has a taste for the finer things. Uh, maybe, again, which is why she didn't necessarily go for like the ballpark nachos. That's that's true. She probably does not uh, mess around with queso. Well, that's an interesting question, Mike. Who do you think is involved in the Star Trek Discovery Finer Things Club? Yeah, I mean, I think... See, that's tough because, like, again, Jet Reno maybe has a finer palette, but Stamets has already written her off as sort of a grease monkey. I think it's definitely Stamets. Stamets is sort of like the Oscar Nunez of, <laughs> yes. of Star Trek Discovery. So I definitely think he's in there. I'm trying to think of who else because we don't really know that much about the rest of the crew. Uh, uh I don't know. Maybe Linus somehow made his way in yeah, there. Yeah, Linus is totally in the finer things club. Like he just sort of. He, uh, I mean, again, if I'm making office comparisons, Linus is the Creed Bratton of this. But he just sort of like <laughs> showed up, and they're like, "All right, I guess you can be in." Yeah, I, 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 I endorse. But it. I also don't know. Like, and I'm, I'm trying like, to think. Like, who else would Stamets let into the club? You know, because he's he's a very exclusive person himself. Yeah, I feel like Giorgio would want to be in the club and Stamets would veto it. Yeah, because all Giorgio would do is like just mock him mercilessly the entire time, like not be constructive whatsoever. Yep. And I feel like Stamets is always trying to get Culver to go, but he won't. No, exactly. Culver's like, no, I I mean, listen, we're still trying to figure out if I'm the chief medical officer or if someone else is like, I, 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 I don't have time to take care of this, Paul. OK, you you're fine. Go, you know, brag about uh, how you're the driver of the ship, which is a fun reference again to last episode when Stamets <laughs> brings up like, uh, oh, did, did you talk to Detmer? Because I can't escape this argument that I'm useless <laughs> on this ship. That's that's a fun callback to even, you know, the previous 42 minutes that we saw. Yeah, that was I feel like we're getting a lot more Detmer this season, like between last week and this week getting we didn't see much Detmer. But for some reason, we decided we had to have Detmer in the previously. And we've seen that scene every episode. Practically, we've seen this scene of Detmer um, getting hit on the head and then everybody pronouncing her fine. Mm -hmm. Why do they keep doing this, Mike? Are they going to do something with it? Or are they just like, hey, remember Detmer? Well, because I think this episode we had like our slow march forward in the Detmer struggling storyline where, you know, they're pulling the Tikov out of the ion storm and she like briefly freaks out for a second so like maybe they're yeah. trying to build on like detmer getting the yips eventually when it's like a really key time we haven't reached that yet like they are really slowly feeding us line at this point yeah and so i'm i'll be intrigued to see when we eventually just like let go and you know fall off this rappel i'll tell you someone else who we found out a little bit more about here so nilson who is that blonde not area mm -hmm. who's played by the first actress uh, is she like the second in command? Because Saru, <laughs> Michael Burnham, and Adira beam over to Starfleet HQ, and Saru goes, "Nilsen, you have the bridge." It's like, uh, okay, wait, why? Where, where does she fall in this pecking order? 
She didn't even get invited to dinner. Yeah, and now all of a sudden she's like, maybe that's because she had to, despite, you know, uh, Zora's insistence, like, hey, give everyone the day off, like, someone had to be on watch, and I guess... Maybe he's like, Nilsson, I trust you enough. You're going to be the one that's going to, you know, sit in an empty cockpit and, and watch the stars while we sort of cruise in, in auto drive here. But yeah, that was such like a strange little detail for me. Because again, I'm, I'm trying to glom onto anything that this crew can provide us, including some of their specific obsessions with futuristic parts of the ships as they pull into Starfleet HQ. Yeah, I loved the part where they're all just geeking out about all the different ships that there are. Although we did get a little bit of feedback to this point, which I thought was a valid point to bring up here. And I'm going to pull it up. We got a tweet about this. Yeah, um, I think I think if uh, you might be able to quote it, but if I may paraphrase, it's from it's from Albert, Albert Vargas, who said that like, oh, was so uh fascinated at the idea that like, oh, look at this ship. It probably houses like 2000 people. And if you translate the numbers like cruise ships hold 2000 people, 2000 plus people. Even so, like, wouldn't that be enough of a thing in the future that it would not be that much of an enhancement for it to suddenly now house as many people as a Carnival Cruise Line ship? Well, especially uh, considering you could look up the Enterprise, um, the Enterprise D, according to Memory Alpha, normally had a complement of approximately 1,000 to 6,000 crew members. So. Yeah. 2,000 crew members, not that much. Like, a 1,000 is its skeleton crew, so... I don't know. So, I mean, I guess maybe is this a thing of, like, when Disco took place, that that's more of a 2300s thing, that they really oh. increased the storage, and, like, 2200s, they were just running skeleton crews in, like, super small quarters? That's a good point. Um... Well, I'm, I'm gonna try to look up the Enterprise A yeah, now, cause, because yeah, cause now I know I'm the Enterprise curious. D, obviously, like, the big... Uh, Bolster was like, oh, it had families on, right? Like, I think the specifically TNG yeah. was about much more of a community aboard the ship than TOS, which was much more bare bones. Yeah, I'm not seeing anything to suggest the number of the number of personnel on board that, but I do think that the Enterprise D was supposed to be like, you know, next generation was like, we are, you know, this ship is bigger and better. Right. And, you know, we have, we have, um, some of our, you know, some of our personnel walk around in little uniforms that have tiny shorts on them. Right. What did you make of the, of sort of the callbacks that I mentioned before the, both the 11th version of Voyager and of course the, the USS Nog of it all. I love that. I love that Nog got a ship named after him. That that seems like it is justice served, especially like he had such a rough time in the Dominion War. Yeah, well, that's the thing is that I think ever since Aaron Eisenberg's death last year, there's been a lot of like bated breath as to how the franchise would honor him. In fact, I was actually at uh, NYCC last year where someone flat out asked Alex Kurtzman, like, hey, is there going to be a, a Captain Nog storyline or, or a short trek in honor of the late Aaron Eisenberg? And Kurtzman sort of like dance around the answer but at least this is i think this is modern trek's first outright reference to it which is great because it, it's a great way to honor the actor and honor the character because like you said you know nog himself went through such a struggle working his way into starfleet that it, it's cool to imagine that despite the fact that aaron eisenberg and assumingly nog have left us like even centuries after the fact he was such a, a big part of the Federation that not only did he assumingly become a captain and maybe beyond, but he had a freaking ship named after him that has lasted generations beyond his lifetime. So I think it's it's like just a it's not too in your face, but it's if you see it and you know it's history, it, it's a really 
heartwarming gesture towards someone and a character that has meant a lot to so many people over the years. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, it was a nice little Easter egg tribute because I think somebody that's uh, only watching disco and I don't know how many people that describes, to be honest, Mike, I don't know mm. who chose this as their entry point, but if you did, you don't necessarily need to know that. Right. But it's, it's really fun if you do. Right. And that's the thing with the Voyager as well, right? Like if you don't know what the USS Voyager is, the fact that you know it's the 11th iteration still fills in some of those blanks of, yeah, I might not know what the titular series is about, but damn, that ship has had a lot of babies. Uh, this is its great, 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 great grandchild. That says a lot about how old these ships are. Yeah. And, um, and the lineage, too. Like, they are, they're very committed to this is, you know, this is our past and they're preserving it in a way by, maintaining those names. Uh, and I enjoyed that everybody seemed to want to know about their own planet. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, Saru is like, okay, so where are all the Kelpians? Um, and he's excited about Kaminar joining the Federation. And I think Nan kind of has that same feeling about the Barzans. And it's, it's very fun to start to fill in like these little trivia blanks that maybe don't necessarily mean a lot. Um, as far as pushing the story forward, but there are things that like, I think your first impulse, if you came a hundred, if you came hundreds of years into the future, you would want to look up your own people on exactly. Wikipedia. Yeah. And the thing, Saru's in particular really caught me because again, Saru is especially approaching that Federation situation, like very sober and by the book, but you could tell like he genuinely gets tripped up when he finds out that Kaminar joined the Federation. Because if you remember, I mean, that's all Saru's doing. Like Saru was yeah. the one who made first contact with the Vulcans because he was yeah, able nobody to, else had ever yeah, made contact. He found the Bowel technology and repurposed it. So like that status is all because of him. Not to just besmirch, you know, non whatsoever, but I don't think she can necessarily say that about the Barzan. This all is because of Saru. Saru is essentially the founding father of Kaminar getting into the Federation, and that's gotta be pretty damn remarkable to think about. And he could use a win. I think he, he likes that pretty well. Although he's apparently, they were doing his, their scans of him and he's apparently the, the only Kelpian in the present day who's ever gone through the space puberty. Right. Well, because I think once they realized the space puberty was a big hoax, uh, maybe, maybe yeah. they like phase that, maybe becoming part of the Federation, I don't know, might have meant some like screwing with the genes to make it seem like yeah. almost vestigial in a way. But that's interesting. So I guess if we do meet any more Kelpians, they're not going to shoot the little porcupine quills. Yeah, that's, and they, you know, it's fun to have your own little special skill. Yeah, I do agree, though, that I think, I think Saru needs a win, because it's been a tough few episodes for him as a captain. Yeah. And that's not to say that, like, I mean, he literally puts the ship in harm's way as soon as a couple of episodes ago. But still, it has to be tough when, like, his main mission has been, let's meet the Federation. And then when they do, it's like, new phone, who dis? And he's like, oh, <laughs> crap. Oh no. And then also to the point where freaking Vance is like, all right, you'll go, we'll have you go on this seed mission, but we're, you're going to stay here as collateral. He's like, come on. I don't even get to go on the cool mission. I have to stay here and exchange awkward words with you. Yeah. And Saru is not the most sparkling personality to make the small talk to begin with. No. Yeah. But it is interesting, like how the future just keeps disappointing them in all <laughs> kinds of ways, big and small. Like it's like, the whole point of Star Trek is that the future is going to be awesome. Like we're going to be post currency and everyone gets along and we have adventures and we explore the great unknown and they get to the future and the ship almost gets eaten by ice. 
And then they go to Earth, and Earth doesn't want anything to do with them. And so they find the Federation. Federation wants slightly less to do with them. It's just – it's like one thing after another with these guys. Like, I feel like every single next thing is just going to be like, eh, this sucks. And, like, Reno's eating her chips. She's like, this is sort of stale. Yeah. You know, these blue corn chips aren't very good. You give me the salt-free ones. What's up with that? Well, essentially, like, this whole season has been, like, a pledging process for the Discovery. Yeah. Where, like, they... They're being hazed. Yeah, exactly. They think, like, okay, we're finally welcome into this fraternity. Uh, You know, like, we're we're back. We might be in a different place. We went from home to college, but I'm happy to make new friends. And they're like, hold on. First, you gotta go get us some seeds naked <laughs> and then come back and then swallow them all. Uh, like it's there, there's just a, a continual, like almost Herculean trials. And granted, Discovery seems to jump over them one after the other, but I don't know. You have to imagine to go back to the Detmer of it all. Eventually, things have to break to a certain extent of like, damn it, we've been through way too much in this time period. Like, we just can't put up with this brave new world that we're a part of. Yeah, can't catch a break. Like, nobody's respecting us whatsoever. We're the Rodney Dangerfield of the future. Exactly. And only Zora, Although- only Zora would get that reference. It's true. And Zora would probably make them watch Back to School or something. Exactly. <laughs> I do note, though, that that's not really what happened here. What happened is they rock up to the Federation and they're like, oh, I see you got a problem over there. Hey, can we fix your problem? Let us fix your problem. You got a problem. And they're like, yeah, let us handle our own business, Discovery. And it's only when they're completely out of ideas, they're like, yeah, I guess you can try to solve the problem. Mm. I don't think they thought that they were going to come back with any kind of solution. Yeah, I mean, Michael Burnham was such an eager puppy in this episode yeah. of being like, no, we got to prove ourselves. Let's prove ourselves. And I think she's also exhibiting a bit of that pushiness and dare I say it, insubordination that we saw in those first two episodes of all the way back in season one, Jess. And maybe that sort of gap mm. year has sort of brought back that attitude from her of like, if I know something is right protocol be damned i'm gonna speak up about it and that might cause for some conflict down the line but at the end of the day she does end up being right so it's it's this weird thing that like picard got in trouble for this all the time right and so did kirk Mm -hmm. of like you break the you know you 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 break the prime directive you break all these rules but at the end of the day the results do speak for themselves so we can't be too mad at you Yep. Oh, I think that's kind of, it's weird that that's such a through line of Star Trek where Star Trek, their whole thing is the future is great and all the rules we write are there for a reason and they help everybody. And it's like, yeah, but then everybody breaks them. So why bother? Right. But it's also almost like, uh, let's question why these rules exist. Uh, you know, they're, they're almost like straw men in that regard. Uh, yeah, these things don't really work and we're going to explain to you why they work. Uh, I mean, in, in this case, you know, I think that it also didn't help that Federation really had no idea, like, how the spore drive worked or specifically how good it was. And I guess if you live in a reality where a century plus has gone by, where you basically have no ways to travel anywhere fast, you're like, oh, yeah, sure. You have a thing that could instantaneous jump somewhere. Like, why don't you show me it? And I do think they were legitimately surprised by the actual jump itself, because because Discovery was expunged from the records, there is no talk of a spore drive at all. So even if they mention spore drive, they wouldn't be like, oh, yes, yes, I've, I've heard about this. They're just like, are you just saying gobbledygook right now? You're just giving me random jargon, random words you're smushing together right now? Mycelial network? What is that? Well, the weird thing is they were very laissez-faire about the spore drive. Mm-hmm. Like they, they, they're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, you can use your spore drive thingy, whatever. 
And they talk about it like it's a thing that they already knew about, which is weird because until this point, they didn't even know that the discovery existed. So that is it's interesting that they're like, oh, I guess, you know, they weren't excited about the instantaneous travel. Maybe they didn't think that maybe they didn't think it was really a thing. Yeah, maybe maybe they honestly thought up to that point, Jess, that they were being conned, uh, which I don't know why they would send like Lieutenant Willa, one of Vance's best on that ship, if they thought she was going to get jumped. Uh, but being <laughs> like, yeah, I don't think these people are who they say they are. Sure, they might have like a super magical way to jump forward. Like, we're we're going to check this out. I'm not sure. I, I, it seemed like the more you bring this up, the more I realize that Starfleet both verbalized their thoughts on Discovery, but also somehow didn't. And that, yeah. you know, they, they definitely the allowance of them to let Discovery go on the mission, considering like this was not some sort of errand as much as it may have been on the surface, like this was to save a population from dying and mass of a pandemic. You'd think that they'd be a, a little less la di da about the, the fact of, yeah, we're going to leave these, let you get these life, you know, life saving supplies to help with the species. Yeah, it was, it was strange to me. They, I, it almost felt like they didn't really know what their reaction was. And I, to be fair, a lot of weird stuff just got thrown at them very, very fast, but seemed like there should have been it should have been one or the other and it, it it's yeah. hard to be both maybe they also had a very discovery like reaction of like weird stuff happens every day in starfleet so yeah come in and say you're time travelers and have a magical mushroom drive that allows you to warp anywhere you want sure i'm not gonna bat an eyelash at it yeah i mean to be fair there are you know 500 episodes of weird things happening to various people in starfleet we have to assume everybody undergoes that all the time all right, Jess, before we get into the seed vault, why don't we take a jump for a second? Have the listeners hear a word from our sponsors. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay. And we're back. Yeah, so uh, I guess, you know, we definitely have buried the lead from a certain perspective. Uh, Bye-bye, Commander Non. She is gone. At least uh, we think. I mean, I think she's definitely off the ship. I guess the question is, Jess, is she off the show? I think we might see her come back at some point, but... It was really funny. She got one of those amazing race edits where all of a sudden you see <laughs> the a personal team. story bump. <laughs> yeah, get the personal story bump. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're getting a lot more non. Yeah. Only so only for her to get full eliminated at the end. Yeah. I mean, uh, when I saw Rachel Antrell's name in the in the opening credits as like one of the main cast members, I'm like, oh, oh, 
okay, yeah. what's going on? And I guess there was a bit of a connector in the previously on when Non and Giorgio had that random scene where they were exchanging reasons for why they're here. And evidently, it was like a small mini arc to get Non to eventually leave the ship to essentially be able to, to your point, really to the extreme of being like, hey, where are my relatives? This is the equivalent of her driving to her childhood home and being like, I wonder who lives there now. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's another trope where you like knock on the door and it's like, oh, hey, do you mind if I look around? Because I used to live here when I was a kid. Right. Except in this case, this is someone like an unruly teen who gets kicked out of their house by their parents. And then they go away for a long time and then come back when, you know, new people live there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the seed vault proper because I think this is a really fun shout out to something that actually exists, Mike. Oh, really? There, there is a real seed vault on Earth. Um, in Svalbard in Norway, they have this vault where they have copies of like every seed of every plant on Earth. So the in the cold weather and remote location kind of insulates it from everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if there's ever a point where we need one of these seeds, we can go back and retrieve like enough things to, you know, re restart agriculture. Yeah, I mean, the more this was described on the show, I was like, yeah, this makes sense. Why was this not a thing before in canon? I'm glad it exists in real life, because I would even imagine on a galactic scale, it's that much more important. Like they talk about with these Keeley uh, that, you know, their planet got irradiated. I can imagine that happens a lot to many, many planets. So I think it would make sense to have a bunch of stuff, be it flora or fauna on hand in case there are ecological disasters. Yeah, well, and now they have... um they must have cloning by this point. They must have that pretty much perfected. So mm. they probably have some like DNA of every species on record. Right. But I think essentially what the seed vault is, is sort of like the Mac time machine. Yep. Where it's like, we're going to revert it to a backup because that was the issue, right? Was yep. that this this planet had become irradiated for so many years that eventually it, it had, had its impact on the people. So they really needed something that was like from way, way back in the day. And it just so happened that the ship was floating, I guess maybe because the Starfleet was so multitasking, they, they just lost track of their sh- of that seed ship so many years ago. That is a little weird considering how vital that seems to be to your point for like the lifeblood of the galaxy. Yeah, but on the other hand, they didn't have long range communication. They didn't really, you know, it was probably lower priority when survival is your only thing. Although, mm-hmm. yeah, this is kind of this seems to be designed for exactly that kind of scenario when uh technology is failing you and you need to just get a fresh start and all you've got is like a shovel (laughs) yeah exactly uh or in this case uh a poor man just phasing in and out of existence consistently over the course of six weeks luckily it's not like a year or something because that would be true like uh twilight zone black mirror stuff but still I can't imagine. I don't know. Boimler on Lower Decks had a problem where he was stuck in phase and it didn't seem painful as much as annoying. So I hope it was the same thing with this guy. Well, physically painful, probably not, but emotionally painful. Like, poor guy's been through a lot in the last six weeks. Yeah. I mean, he lost all his family, but it's still like, I don't know. Was, was he, do you think he was in denial at that point, which is why he was so like, uh, protective of the seeds? Or did he really think that, like, did he not see his family die? and thought at that moment that they weren't dead. 
Well, it's interesting. They sort of gloss over all of these feelings that he might have had when you just have non kind of say with a shrug and no follow up. Yeah, we have different ideas of how death works. Yeah, that's the thing is, again, it's it's a little bit of rope we're given about the Barzans because the Barzans prior to non-existence, one Barzan showed up in one episode of Star Trek mm-hmm. The Next Generation. So we really know nothing about it. It's very similar to like when the Trills were introduced in TNG, that it was just a one-off alien that happened to become something bigger in the writer's room. So we found out a little bit about them. But yeah, it's, it was either like, yeah, we don't really... I mean, it seemed like they alluded to the fact that like they don't believe that, that uh, corporeal death is really the end. And so what Dr. Addis was doing was not necessarily like a an active futility and more so about him being like, Oh, I, I, they're not truly dead. They're mostly dead. So I'm going to put them in a cryogenic state for however long until I figure out what's happening. Yeah. Or, or like they aren't, they aren't truly dead until we've had a proper wake for them. Right. Exactly. So it's sort of like, we're going to keep this body on ice quite literally until I'm able to, to get back there, no matter what form of matter I may be in. Yeah. And they talk about like, you know, it's one of our, one of our mandates in the Federation is cultural sensitivity. And they kind of reached this catch 22 with like, well, we have to, you know, we have to rescue him, but he doesn't right. want it's, to be rescued. It's and, the, yeah. The duality of no man left behind, but also like yeah. respecting one's values. Yeah. And I feel like I needed more about Barzan culture to really have this be hammered home. Yeah, I will say I think that the I mean, obviously, it, it built to an emotional payoff conclusion with when non chooses to sort of share the load and, and take on the ship. But I do agree. It's sort of like quickly built to something. Maybe it's because we really had to, like, put that into the episode where they find the Federation as well. And obviously, the first half of the episode had to be focused around that, that to concern the second half of the episode with the mission felt a little rushed. I also felt like Colbert was actually... Uh, for being so concerned with mental health last episode, yeah. he, was a, he was a bit prickly this episode. Yeah, it was like, yeah, he's like, maybe this guy should just get over it, even though he just witnessed his whole family dying. Yeah, exactly. Or like, or like, non's too close. Michael, you gotta tell, you gotta give it to him straight, you know, be good cop, bad cop. <laughs> yeah, speaking of good cop, bad cop, yeah, it, it was, it was a very inconsistent view of Colbert. Uh, unless they're trying to say like Colbert's psychology guy, he knows how to get inside your head, but it's like, no, he's empathy guy. He's not really psychology guy. Exactly. Like, again, it, 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 the guy who approaches Saru last, last week and says like, I think everyone's a little depressed. We need to do something or Detmer. I want to extend an open hand. I'm always here for you. You know, it's okay not to be okay. Versus this week of like, let's get him out of there. I don't care what he says. It's on. Maybe it's, it's, it's more internal versus external. That he sort of has that colder face when, or colder face when he faces, yeah. uh, you know, external parties versus internally. Like he knows what it's like to be a Starfleet officer because he has more sympathy there. I also will notice, speaking of, of, of fun guest actors, that Dr. Addis was played by Jake Epstein, who you might remember as Craig from Degrassi, The Next Generation. Oh, my goodness. That's where I've seen him before. Yeah. When he was really like throwing a fit in anger, I was like, oh, yep, I remember. That's our Craig. I remember when he, when he did that fondly many a time on Degrassi. But yeah, I didn't put two and two together. And obviously, uh, Disco films in Canada. So I think it would make sense for like him to make a hop, a skip, and a jump over to film one quick episode. So when are we getting Drake? 
I think Drake would be the big get. I just don't know how you do that. Unless he's a huge Star Trek fan. I don't know if how you're necessarily like, I think it'd have to be Whoopi Goldberg in essentially is what I'm saying of like, he'd have to be really into it. And then be, then they say, yeah, we're more than lucky to have you, but I don't think they're going to be reaching out to Drake <laughs> and saying, Hey, come on, put yourself in a bunch of loaf and be in one of our episodes. Well, what if, what if the Barzan planet is just entirely made up of former actors from Degrassi? Oh, man, that'd be interesting if uh, we see the short trek of non bringing the Tikov home and it's just all Degrassi actors being like, we hate you, non. Or I guess they're they're distant relatives of non. So unless they still hold the same values, they're going to be more open to her than it seems like her family was upon finding out that she was joining the Federation. Yeah. And again, this this just speaks to I, I don't think we got enough Barzan here because it seems like we've seen various cultures approach death in various ways and it mm-hmm. was like it it wasn't just like a a throwaway line where you're like oh i guess we have to accept it but i'm thinking specifically and i keep going back to poor enrique on deep space nine who got he got he was in five episodes and it was enough that you had sort of a relationship with him and then he gets killed and at the end of that episode Worf comes in with O'Brien and they, they talk about how in a lot of cultures you sit with the body and you, you mm-hmm. pay attention to it and you watch over it. And, and Worf is like, well, I'm going to watch over the body with you. And that was, that itself was better done than this. Yeah. I mean, it also doesn't help that non's screen time was very erratic. Um, Cause we saw her on the enterprise then mm-hmm. she was on Disco, and she happened to be part of that trio that had when Arium got killed. Specifically, Non. I forgot that Non was the one to do it uh, because yeah. Arium was like pleading and begging to be ejected out the airlock, and Michael wouldn't do it. And Non finally like pulled the pulled the plug essentially. Then she sort of got her revenge by killing Leland. Of course, we remember the infamous line "Yum Yum" with her yep. sort of sister act with with Giorgio. And then she had that one appearance. So, like it's been so spotty as spotty as gray jess huh. that it's it's weird to sort of like have your emotional investment like tides coming in in and out like if you want emotional emotional investment i think actually what they're doing with detmer is a good idea for like a c-list cast yeah. member of just give us a little bit at a time you know instead of just like well non did something big this episode and then she'll disappear for four episodes and here she is again like there's such little pops that by the time it happened you're like okay either something big is going to happen or like She's going to leave the show and yeah. evidently and end up being the latter. Though I do agree with your point that I think if the show especially stays in the 31st century or 32nd century, I mean, she still is technically part of Starfleet. I think she is now just sort of like commissioned herself the captain of the Tikoff uh, that, you know, there's a good chance that her skills can be called upon again in a moment's notice. But it's safe to say even though she's only made about like five or six appearances on the show, it's going to be much more limited in the future. Right. And unless we are going to the Barzan homeworld at some point to get something from them that they need to do a thing. But it's I think it's especially interesting that they called back to the Arium episode in this one because they kind of did the same thing with Arium. And it's kind of meta like, hey, look at this random background character. Now, all of a sudden, this whole episode's about them so they can exit the show. It's a weird circle of life thing. I totally agree of her being like, yes, I remember when my minor character got bump of airtime and then got 
you know, got killed or left the show in what was supposed to be a very tear-jerking way. And then it all happens again. And I know we were hopeful coming in that that wouldn't be the case. But again, I look at what they're doing with Detmer and I remain hopeful. I'm looking up a la Giotto that, uh, <laughs> you know, that that they'll do things a bit differently with the with the bridge crews. And maybe this was a way to sort of like thin out the herd a bit. Because something else that we talked about is that I think Disco does have a bit of a problem with having a pretty large ensemble and trying to, I think, characterize people but still keep to the serialization of everything and give everyone meaningful storylines is a very, very, very tough thing to do. And so if that means that, you know, Commander Nan does not necessarily need to be on the ship, I, I, I think it's, it's fine to cut that weight a little bit. Yeah, and they have done the thing before where you've had, like, you just get a pop of somebody and then they disappear for five episodes and then it's like, oh, well, we need them to do the thing. Mm-hmm. Like I'm thinking specifically of even even they do that even in short treks. Like they had that short trek with the queen of the planet yeah. makes friends with Tilly and then they bring her back and Tilly's like, oh yeah, we were friends from way back. And it's really, I think they are inconsistent with this. They're not, they're not as good at it as some other shows. Like your beloved lost was much better at this. Like they had 20 people in their main cast and they just kind of surfaced the right ones at the right time. Right, exactly. And th- and that's because it also had specific moments to be like, we are bringing a character forward. And it was sort of everyone's understanding of like, okay, this is uh, a Locke episode. This is a Claire episode. Whereas here, and that's also maybe, you know, what they're trying to do here is a bit of like Nikki and Palloing, right? Of like, yeah. here are some random background people that now we want you to pay attention to. And I think the emotionality and the performances certainly work. I think it's just, it could work a lot more if we had sort of built up some sort of investment in those characters. I mean, that being said, you know, I, again, I think the farewell scene was played well. And I think I'm glad we find found out about non what we did. It did seem like she was a bit of like the black sheep of the Barzan family in joining Starfleet. And maybe that's what made her so militaristic, but it always leaves you wondering like, Oh man, I kind of wish we'd gone to know more. I mean, granted probably not as much as the damn robot woman who got <laughs> killed last season. But still, it's it's another, you know, opportunity. Do we have a, a should we make like a death pool as to who the <laughs> next crew member is going to be that either leads the ship or gets killed proper? Yeah, it's a good it's a good idea. And I, I have some I have ideas, Mike. OK, I I think we're going to have a Linus episode at some point. Ooh, that seems like a given. Mm hmm. But do you think that means that he's is that is that the bump for like his end or do you think that's just like a bump in? Hey, Linus is a fun background character that now we want to bring to more prominence. Well, if if past experience is any indication, I think we we surface Linus then to send him to his home world or to the next world. Yeah, that could be true. Maybe I'm, I may, I'll put in a bid for for Nielsen because I think there needs to be some like final destination Arium business here. Of, like <laughs> you escaped the death last time, but now it's finally coming back around for you. Yeah, I I think that's I think Nielsen could be one of those ones like we know what her name is. She's in the background. She could be a red shirt that goes out on an away mission and doesn't come back. And then they need to find a new number two. Yep. Well, she's like number three at that point, isn't she? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly how it all ends because I don't know where like Stamets figures into it. You know, I feel like he should he should be pretty high up there because I don't care what Detmer says. Like his role is pretty damn important and everything. Yeah, well, and and you know, even in classic 
Star Trek, Spock was like the number, he was like the, he was like the number one as well as the chief science officer. Like right. if Kirk was going down to a planet, Spock was in charge. Right, exactly. And I think, you know, from TNG moving forward was when they really wanted to institute like a number one who was specifically in that role and not yeah. also, you know, double dipping as it were to go back to Jet Reno and the chips. Yeah. Or this could be like the presidential cab- cabinet. Like, mm. you know, if the, if something, if the president is incapacitated, the vice president becomes the acting president. If they're both incapacitated, it's the house speaker. And then after that, it goes down the cabinet. Right. So Linus is sort of the designated survivor, the, uh, the right. keeper Sutherland of disco, it seems. Exactly. He's like the secretary of commerce or yeah. whatever he was. Or, or the poor, like, uh, ensign who had to shovel up Leland is going to be the one running, running the ship by the end once all the crew members just end up dying out or going back to their home planets. <laughs> So it's like a King Ralph scenario at that point. Exactly. Uh, let's let's talk about looking forward, Jess, because there is a bit of a mystery, speaking of seeds, baby, that gets planted <laughs> here. And it's prompted some discussion uh, on, on our sort of social media channels. But I guess I want to start with your thoughts about this mysterious melody that played uh, with the Barzan family on the Tikov that was the same melody that Michael heard Adira play uh, that I guess Tall Senatol had heard as a child. Yeah, this was weird to me, Mike, and it it makes me it makes me very worried because on one hand it could just be like the Despacito of the thirty second century. <laughs> yeah, everyone's like a, it's a it's, yeah it's it's such a banger. It, like everyone yeah. was just getting into it. Slapped so much back then. Yeah, it was, it was a yeah it was a bop, and they're all like going around like da 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 da. But it really the thing that I worry is having that kind of psychological through line across these, you know, many, many light years and many, many centuries. It really worries me that we're going to find out at the end of the season that, you know, this song was Michael's subconscious trying to tell her that none of this was really happening. Mm. And at the end of the season, it could turn out that it was just like Michael's hallucination as she's stuck in the suit in the wormhole. And I really do not want that for the show because I will flip a table and quit Star Trek forever. Oh, my God. Well, first of all, we got to call it Despacito, right? Yes. Yeah, Deep <laughs> um, Space Cito. Yeah, exactly. But I, yeah, it's an interesting point in that this is it's a weird thing in that it's a connector betra- between two very disparate points, both in time yes. and in space. And on paper, you would think like, OK, maybe this is alluding to some sort of, I don't know, mass brainwashing or some sort of communication from somewhere else. But the when you brought up that theory, I, I think there is an outside chance that it might just be like someone is trying to communicate with Michael Burnham specifically because it is Star Trek Discovery. And we know that it has to do, like Michael Burnham is always the most important person <laughs> on the show that someone's specifically trying to talk with Michael Burnham through this song. And if it turns out to be a simulation, I mean, listen, 31st century holodecks might be off the chain that like you you. Can't even see the yellow lines on the floor. That's just how damn good it is. You could go through an entire 13-episode season and not even realize you're in a simulation the entire time. God, I really do not want that. Like, you know, I I don't want it to turn out that she's been in purgatory for six seasons. Uh, Only one season, luckily, in the Lost example. Uh, But yeah, Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that would be a little frustrating because also if the purpose of this season was to explore 
the far reaches of the future, no matter how depressing they might end up being, to have that essentially all become this like, no, that was a fantasy. This is the real future. That would be a bit of a rug pull that I would not like, especially again, if we're supposed to be invested 13 episodes in. But I, I want to talk about, you know, how did how do you think this connects to the burn, if at all? Well, this is a thing we've actually we had some great Twitter exchanges on that um, in the last couple of days. And I think it is sort of a little too on the nose that it's called the burn and our main character that everything has always been about is Michael Burnham. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know that especially in this episode when Michael and Saru retell their story to Vance, you know, it is uh, it's sort of underlined that Michael set the suit to self-destruct and then sent it through the wormhole. And I know, like you said, we have a conversation with Albert Vargas, Brendan Fitzpatrick, J.D. McGuire about this idea of could the suit self-destructing had caused the bird, you know, that maybe for some reason the suit happened to show up, just drop out of the wormhole in that time period, blow up. And then that caused all the warp capable ships to blow up. My thing that I'm still trying to sort of put together the math on is that I do believe the last thing we see of season two is that seven signal, which I would imagine indicates like the suit sending it out and then exploding. And that happened back in the 2200s. So I would think at least part of the suit had to make it back there. Yeah. Did like part of the suit drop off in, in you know, the 3000s to cause the burn? Maybe. So I'm not particularly writing off the theory. I just think, I don't know. I, I, I don't necessarily, I'm not completely buying into the idea of like, well, it was Michael Burnham who ended up accidentally causing the burn. She was the cow that kicked over the lantern that started the great Chicago fire from a galactic perspective. Well, it doesn't have to be the suit. I think the suit is an interesting idea, but I think we have to assume that the suit got back there successfully and did its thing. I I think it is more possible that Michael's going to do something later on slash mm. in the past that causes it. Like There may be a point where she says, the only way to fix what happened to the Federation is to go back and try to stop the burn. And then again, it becomes this Umbrella Academy thing of, in trying to stop the thing that happened, we are the reason that the thing happened. Yeah, and I think that's that's probably where I'm leaning to most because – you know, I think right now there's a bit of a bit of a discourse of like, well, it's a predictable conclusion. It's going to be Michael Burnham. But what Star Trek Discovery has done the past couple seasons is sort of pro- provide that predictable conclusion. But the path to that destination has been batshit crazy. Yeah. Like, yes, Michael Burnham wound up being the Red Angel last season. But I don't think anyone could have predicted. Yes, but there was also a first Red Angel, which was actually Michael Burnham's assumed dead mother who actually time traveled the night that we thought that she died. Like that's just a bananas theory. So I would not be surprised if the exact same thing happens here. If whether it's by her own doing or incidentally, so Michael Burnham does cause the burn, but it's through some sort of weird convoluted series of twists and turns that we cannot even understand or comprehend at this point in time, five episodes in that is going to get us to that point. I would not expect any less from Star Trek Disco. Yeah, especially a millennium into the future. They could come out with like, here's a jingle jingle. It does this thing. And then all of a sudden it gets brought in at the 11th hour and it turns out that that jingle jingle is what caused the burn. And Michael just accidentally happened to have it in her suit at the time. Wow. How very holiday festive, Mike. (laughs) Exactly. Jingle bell rock. 
Yes, indeed. So I also wanted to get back to, um, here's a weird theory that I was spitballing a little bit. So we watched Space John Munch talk to Giorgio for a really long time because it's just kind of a thing he's super into. Right. And he's, and and he's he, also, uh, I mean, so he's talked about how uh, basically RIP Mirror Universe, or at least RIP crossovers to the Mirror yeah. Universe. And that's another well, reason that's, why. Yeah. Because yeah, he's essentially talking with someone who like, uh, uh, people that he has studied but has never met before. Uh, because there's, in his lifetime, there's never been a crossover. Yeah. And this is interesting. He says it was about 500 years ago that we stopped having that happen, which is probably like, I I know we had lots of mirror universe action on DS9. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we ever got any on Voyager. No, we got, but, I think the, the big three were TOS, DS9 and Enterprise were the three that had mirror universe episodes. Yeah. But here's my question. Do you think we had a burn in the parallel universe? Interesting. So there was like an equivalent where things just went haywire in the mirror universe that caused it to separate from the prime universe. Right. When he says that, you know, the the mirror universe is kind of drifting further and further, so it was harder to get there. Mm-hmm. And my question is, if they, you know, they, they seem to be lampshading this pretty hard. So could they find a way to get over to the Terran universe and see if we can steal some of their dilithium? Right. It could be a thing of like, well, they have the the resources that we don't have in this moment. Maybe it could be a thing much like, again, speaking of Voyager, like Starfleet and the Maquis working together of let's go recruit some Terrans to serve as like our, you know, our fists, our goons to sort of carry out Starfleet's will. And so that's going to be a weird partnership because, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, it is part of astronomy that that planes drift apart from each other naturally over time but to have it drift so much over the course of however many years that i guess like 400 so years that now there's not even any crossover between any is i don't know that seems very sudden to me yeah and why even bring it up like are they just trying to explain like why you know, are they trying to just give Giorgio something to do i i feel like this is going to have a role I think we have not seen the last of the Terran universe, even though it's been a few hundred years since they've been to it. Interesting. I could see a scenario where like Giorgio runs into somebody. Now she's like on the hunt for the last people, the last Terrans remaining, or I guess at this point it would be Terran generations because I guess whoever hopped across the border before it closed 500 years ago probably has seated itself within the universe proper and has produced many half star, half Terran or a quarter Terran or eighth Terran children therein. But I also, to your point, just wonder if it's a plot device to see a new side of Giorgio, because she did seem legitimately affected even when talking with David Cronenberg about the fact that, I mean, he literally told her, you're all alone. And so I I wonder if, because going back to that conversation with her and Nan, she said, you know, the reason why I I jumped on board 900 plus years in the future is because, like, I didn't want to get hunkered down in Section 31. She essentially wants to be like a a space couch surfer where she doesn't want to be tied down to any lease. Uh, But I I think that at this moment now, she sort of realized that she's stuck in the location where she is right now. And it's maybe that sort of that finality that has had a profound effect on her to the point where she is off in another universe at the end of the episode. Yeah, but, you know, she left her entire universe already. I feel like these are feelings she's already grappled with and gotten over. But it was weird to me to have her have that much conversation about, you know, how it how it's all been for her and um 
he asks her at one point, like, you know, what was the reason you stuck by this ship and decided to come into the future? It wasn't just because you needed a change of scenery. Like, who are you here for? And mm-hmm. I think that is going to factor into it as well, because, I mean, we obviously know who she's here for, right. but – I don't know that she necessarily knows that. Exactly. I was thinking the exact same thing of her. Maybe she's it's more so her coming to the realization of like, oh, crap, I have I have feelings for Michael Burnham in the cold cockles of my heart. I actually feel some warmth towards this version of Michael Burnham. And maybe that's going to, I don't know, let let her have some more loyalty to the ship proper or at least to her, whatever Michael Burnham decides to do. Yeah, it it's going to be. There's going to be a transformation there, and I, I really would hate to see Giorgio get softened by this new existence. Yeah, I don't, I don't think she'll get softened. Maybe a little bit more drawn out, but I think both Michelle Yeoh and the team have so much fun with this version of Giorgio that I do not think it's going away anytime soon, but I could see more complexities being brought to the character like now we're sort of adding in that third dimension as opposed to just the two dimensions that we've seen of her as a Terran to the point where again like you said it's really lampshaded of yeah you're a Terran all you basically you don't really care about anyone and you just like to brutalize things those are the two things we know about Terrans and those are the two things we know about Giorgio if it means we get more of an opportunity to learn about her as a person instead of her as a Terran I'm all the all the more for it. Just, you know, like you said, don't get rid of like the very curt one liners or the badass scenes where you break someone's neck with your legs. Yeah. Do not do not send three spirits to visit her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's going to be the, the Jingle Bell Rock special is three holograms. It's sent, sent to Giorgio and she just blinks them out of existence immediately. Hey, look, Star Wars can have a holiday special. Star Trek certainly could as well. Well, considering the uh, reputation of the Star Wars holiday special, I think Star Trek wants to steer away from that. Hey, you know, the Star the Star Wars holiday special is still better than some of the movies. Yeah, I mean, listen, it has more uh, stuff to be joyous about, I'm sure. And there's there's not a lot to be joyous about in this future. So you know what? Actually, to quote anti-mame, maybe Discovery needs a little Christmas right this very minute. Hey, you know, we're steering towards a a season half finale that's going to coincide with the Christmas holidays. So maybe that's what we're getting or that would be perfect fodder for a short trek. Yeah, maybe. You know what? I do feel like actually you, I know you made the, the George O comparison, but I think Admiral Vance is more so the Scrooge like character to me. Like he's very hard edged and miserly. Yeah, maybe he needs three spirits and maybe those spirits are Saru and Michael and George O. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe so. <laughs> wow, we're getting we're getting way off the track of this episode, Mike. Is there anything else that you feel like we need to bring up? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think this was definitely a, a big setup episode. Like this was a big episode from the ramifications of we get we finally see the Federation, and now we get Discovery introduced into it. But I think more so than the other four, this does not. This seems like the first non standalone episode almost of Star Trek Discovery season three in that. I could expect at least for the next few episodes, we're still going to remain in this big Nexus hub. Maybe they're going to be doing a bunch of missions for Vance from now on. But considering that this was their goal all along, I can't expect us to leave Federation HQ anytime soon. So I say get used to these surroundings. And I think, you know, again, it was a big transition episode. And not only that we established a new location, we said goodbye to a character as well. So I think it really is sort of like, 
cleaning everything out to settle into the next phase of the season. Yep. Um, I, yeah, I think, well, we saw this exact thing happen last season too. We had, um, we had the, the buildup of we're going to follow all these little, these little signals. And then they kind of abandoned the signals at a certain point. They reached a point where it's like, okay, the next phase, we're done tracking down the signals and now we're going to do the next thing. And so I think maybe we've hit our next thing. Yeah, I think this is definitively phase two of Star Trek Discovery season three, which makes me excited as to where we're going to go. We got rid of some characters, we introduced new ones, and considering just the weird and outrageous directions that the season has gone so far, which I've enjoyed, I'm excited to see where it goes next, even if we're sort of staying put for the time being. Yep. And you know, Mike, we were talking about office parallels, and we got a guy who sort of works in a different company adjacent to this one, and his name is Vance. So Mm. he's Admiral Vance of Vance Refrigeration. What if he is a distant relative? And that sort of is like, he's like, ever since my family founded that refrigeration company, I've been cold as ice. And damn it, (laughs) I'm not going to let you warm me over, Michael Burnham. Yep, I think... I think that's exactly what happened, Mike. And I think it's all part of the Tommy Westfall universe. And now I now I cannot not watch that character without thinking Admiral Vance Vance Refrigeration. You're welcome. I love it. Oh, this is gonna be great to take into next week and moving forward. Yes, indeed. Um so Mike, I want to take a minute before we sign off. I want to thank everybody who's been following us on this crazy journey into the 32nd century, as well as all of those people that followed us over to postshowrecaps.com and joined up our Patreon. Mm-hmm. And we have had a great first month on Patreon. We are now halfway through our second month and we have more than 350 patrons who are creating this amazing community of supporters. Like um, if you join us on Patreon at the $10 level and above, you get access to a discord server. That is the most fun. Yeah. It we're really just is. having a blast. There's so much discourse happening. Just so many conversations about everything from the current podcast that we're doing to shows that we're watching now to, you know, just random musings from time to time. It, it's really been a fantastic community that's been built out. I mean, like you said, Jess, 350 plus patrons, that is more planets that were in the Federation at its peak. So that says a lot about our own federation of patrons, not to mention all of the great patron exclusive content that's happening, including watching with Rick Wiggler, which Josh got together with Shannon Gus to talk about some very interesting stuff. Of course, we have uh, the post show recaps theater. We've got uh, origin story, which I know is in the main feed as well. So there is just a lot going on as we are nearing the end of a 2020 year. Things are hopping with all the great stuff on post show recaps, specifically in our patron community. So if you have a few dollars to just to lend us please don't be the emerald chain and be stingy orions and andorians if we're able to we always appreciate any sort of uh commitments you may be able to make because i think there's there's a lot available for those that will join our federation yes indeed and if you join our federation at the 15 dollar level you get a wombats hat which is basically it's basically like the attractive brooch that you don't want Giorgio to snatch away and smash on the floor. Yeah. What do you think about the egg-shaped Starfleet logo? You know, they got to undergo several different iterations of a logo over time. Like you can't stand still for too long. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I like that the 
it's not just sort of the the little divot anymore. I like that there's a bit of a background to it. It is weird that it almost reminds me of one of those like Reese's trees or Reese's eggs <laughs> in its shape of it. So I hope it's edible. I wouldn't be surprised if it doubles as rations at some point, but I, I'm excited by the new look of it. It does feel very futuristic too, right? Even more futuristic than Star Trek proper. It's like, no, but I feel like curves and circles are really what the future is. I mean, everybody has felt that way for a long time. I was even just thinking about the Back to the Future Part 2 iteration of 2015, where everything was curves and circles. Yeah, I mean, look no further than Wally, where Wally, which is supposed to be the antiquated robot, is all angles and boxes, and Eve is all rounds and, and bare, like, very much rounded points. So I think it really just shows, like, geometry has a certain futuristic aspect to it. Yeah, I mean, you know what's going to be you know what's going to go extinct, Mike? Right angles. Yeah, that might be. That might have gone away in the burn. Maybe. Maybe it just got rid of every single pointy object and all the dilithium. Yeah, maybe they're just like, oh, this is too dangerous. Like, don't, can't run with scissors. Just get any pointy objects away from us. They're banned. You know what? They're banned everywhere in the universe. Yeah, but Mike, here's a transition for you. If you've got any points you'd like to make <laughs> about this episode, see what I did there? Yeah, I love it. I love you it. You can. Yeah, you can reach out to us on Twitter. You can reach me at Haymaker Hattie. You can reach me at a Mike Bloom type. You can also reach at Post Show Recaps. Uh, you can also, if you haven't yet, we are still humming along on our on our Star Trek only feed at postshowrecaps.com slash Star Trek. If you want to leave some ratings and reviews, we're still in the first, you know, third of the season, sort of. And people are looking for Star Trek podcasts to listen to as this season gets more and more intriguing and complicated. So if you pop us up to the top of the charts there. That's going to allow more people to get invested into all the chicanery that we are undergoing. But yeah, we've had some great talks over the past few days about your own theories about the burn and where this melody is coming from. And God help us if Michael Burnham is indeed in a simulation. Give us your thoughts because something tells us, especially with this melody dropping in, that we're going to get more and more clues happening throughout these episodes to lead to an eventual wackadoo outcome. Yeah, although if it's just like the bop of the 3200s, you know, that's a that's a choice too. Yeah, exactly. It'll be like that one episode when they were having a party on Disco Season 1 and they used like that random house trap song. Yep. Or it could be the episode where Troy can't get the song out of her head. Oh, no. Exactly. Well, that's more so because there was a genocidal, weird, like mental maniac living on a planet. So hopefully it's not that case. Hopefully not, but that's as good an explanation as any for what's going on right now. Yeah, exactly. So, Jess, I know that elsewhere on Post Show Recap, speaking of uh, crazy, maniacal people, you are fiercely into The Walking Dead beyond and for The Walking Dead at this point. Yes, indeed. We have a we have a special recap podcast every week called Fear the Walking Dead World Beyond, where we talk about everything that happened on both of these shows. Um, and whether you watch those shows or not, it is a very fun time. Josh Wiggler and Chappelle and myself are going on some really fun and really interesting tangents. Um, so I think this week is going to be an especially good one, considering some of the utter crap we had to put up with in both of these shows this week. Um, we are going to be coming in hot. So there's that. And there's also Mike, you and I and Rob Sesternino are talking about Amazing Race over on Rob's website. And we are having a very good season. Yeah, I mean, speaking of surprise twists, definitely one of the 
biggest, most surprising endings I can remember for an Amazing Race episode in some time. We broke it all down, and at the time we're recording this, hopefully later today, we should be talking with the great Liana Boris, uh, my number one over on the B&B, as we're really co-captains in that regard. But we're gonna she, we're gonna have her on the tar pits, talk through all the silliness that came out of this week in the Amazing Race. I've also gotten together with Rob Cesarino for our own Survivor off-season podcast called Outwit, Outplay, Outlist, where we arbitrarily and reductively rank a bunch of survivor miscellaneous topics i do wonder just when it comes to the time that we're sort of uh going through to some maybe less talked about survivor talking points maybe we could get to like recast uh, star trek using star survivor castaways well we did do a star trek brant steel which is almost the same thing Right, it's just more so the opposite of like, you know, who is the Captain Kirk of Survivor? Uh, who is the Bones, you know, in the in that regard? Yeah, it's, well, the Captain Kirk of Survivor is obviously Boston Rob and the Bones is obviously Sandra Diaz-Twine. Yeah, yep, you know what? That makes, oh, that's, that works so well. Oh, that works so well. Okay, maybe this has to be an actual thing in the future because that's just incredible. Oh, well, I will join you over on Out Without Play Out list if you ever want to do that. Yeah, I just can't wait for the big statue of Captain Kirk to show up in uh, Indiana or something when they visit this, this the island of the Starfleet idols. Hey, he's from Iowa. He only works in our space. Ah, I apologize. I mixed up my ice my eye states. Yeah, there. It's like everybody calls those the flyover states anyway. Mike, what else is going on in your world? So otherwise, uh, I am, you know, covering the amazing race for parade.com. Also doing some write-ups, Star Trek rise at CBR.com comic book resources, of course, have my weekly recap up and quite a few number of breakouts. This is a lot about what we talked about today. Uh, namely, you know, what we find out about the mirror universe and where it is or where it might be uh talking about uh you know the the history of nog and why aaron eisenberg's reference in there is so so meaningful and so much beyond so yeah lots of articles coming out really flying like a like a mycelial network as opposed to a warp drive over at cbr.com so if you're into star trek and you're into my writing you got a place to go i'll welcome you unlike admiral vance yes indeed you will get a much warmer reception very much so Yep, and I hope that everybody listening to this podcast also felt the warmth of our our repartee, if you will. Yeah, hopefully we're as uh, enjoyable as a flying rainforest. Yeah, I want I want them to go to the flying rainforest. If they don't get there before the end of the season, I'm going to have words. I definitely rewound it a couple times because I thought initially that Tilly had said that that's an effing rainforest, <laughs> uh, which I would not put it past Tilly to do because she is definitively the potty mouth of Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, I I wouldn't have been surprised either, but we did see it and it is indeed flying. So I think it's um, she did not give a flying F. Do you think it's going to be like a flying rainforest cafe where like they they like they gentrified the hell out of it and it's not really that that, you know, uh, jungle like. Like you go in there and they're, they're like they seat you under the waterfall and you have to order like yucca fries or something. Exactly. And they're like, oh, okay, uh, here's your basket of blue corn chips and salsa that you can have underneath well, maybe that's the canopy. where they got them. Maybe yeah. they, they, they had to call down to the Rainforest Cafe to feed Reno. Yeah, maybe that maybe Rainforest Cafe, despite this being a post-capitalist structure, Rainforest Cafe has somehow survived and is thriving in a much larger capacity than we ever could have imagined. Is this is this sort of like how in Demolition Man all the restaurants are Taco Bell? 
Exactly. Like they've all merged into one big conglomerate. Maybe they did, but it all just became Rainforest Cafe. And here it is in the flesh, safely nestled in the food court of Starfleet headquarters. What a great, what a great note to end on, Mike. We're just going to enjoy this moment of dessert as we contemplate a future full of rainforest cafes. Oh, if only, if only. Yeah, there's some sun peeking through the, peeking through the canopy as we uh, put an end to this episode five recap of Star Trek Discovery. So I want to thank you, Mike, for being with me on this crazy journey through the flying rainforest. And to all of our, yes, and to all of our listeners for sticking with us this long. And everybody should live long and prosper. And we'll see you next week. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.